Okay, Revelation chapter number 7. You've heard me espouse from the very beginning that really, it's my personal opinion, and I think it's a growing opinion, that the very best way to understand the book is not as this gradual unfolding of these things that happen chronologically from, you know, a particular point till the uh, establishment of the new heavens and the earth at the very end of time. Uh, But it's better to understand it as an arrangement of seven different visions, and each one of those visions actually cover basically the same period of time, which would be between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ and Christ coming again. Uh, Okay. What we're going to be seeing here in chapter 7, I just want to let you know this a little bit. Uh, And that is basically what you're going to find here is Jesus through the Apostle John is saying, hold on a second, let's take a step back in time. Because as we finished up our sermon last week, we we were considering the probability that what was being described there was in fact the final day of judgment, described there as the day of their wrath, the day of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the wrath of the, of the Lamb. It's as if chapter 7 says this, even though that is coming, there is something else of very great and extreme importance that you need to know beforehand. Okay? So keep that in mind as we read through uh, the first 12 verses of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth. Notice they're harm the earth. They're holding back the winds so that the earth will not be harmed by those winds. In the sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Oh, we're sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, 
Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We understand there are not literally four corners of the earth, right? Matter of fact, there are no corners on the earth. Uh, But what is being pictured here is these four angels that are holding back the wind. And I would say that it's more than that. They're holding back the wrath of God, in a sense, that is going to fall upon the earth one of these days eventually. How do we know that? We know that because now they're told to not let go, to wait. Something else has to happen first. You notice this angel that appears suddenly, another angel. So there's four holding back the winds. And we understand this, that the wind very often is one of the most destructive forces that man knows. Hurricanes, tornadoes, cyclones, typhoons, thunderstorms very often have wind that comes along with them. We had a, had a, a, a tree in our neighbor's yard, 3 o'clock in the morning, that came crashing down the other night. And there's a good chance it was because, because of wind and the roots were rotted, but it, it really was... Followed the the, the 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 most perfect path it possibly would have could have without actually causing damage to their house. It was a huge tree, but we know that very often wind is associated with these things, and we've seen the destruction of hurricanes in particular the last few years. Uh, Laura, uh, Lindsay, and Justin down in, in in Puerto Rico now, and they still see evidence of the hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico last fall. But I would challenge us to believe that it's destructive forces that goes beyond just wind. There's a sense in which these angels are holding back that which is coming, the wrath that is coming upon the earth in God's day of judgments. This angel also has a seal. The seal of the living God. Now we've, talk, we've been talking about this is the vision of the seven seals, right? And we're Uh, we still have another seal to come. We haven't gotten there yet. Not until chapter 8. The final one of those seven seals. And we said in this particular, that particular instance that the seals are, are on this scroll and the scroll basically seems to, to, to have written in it, is authored by God, has the authority of God. What is about to take place? And we know that Jesus has been breaking those, these seals. And as he's done that, the scroll has been unrolled. And its contents revealed. Now the sealing that is mentioned here is somewhat different. This is a sealing that is put... On people. Okay. A sign, a seal on, described here as being on their forehead. It has a purpose. 
The purpose is to set them apart. It also carries the idea of ownership. In other words, a person upon whom the seal of God is placed is his. Now, some people might think it's almost like uh, that they're enslaved to him, but it's, I don't want us to think about that at all uh, when it comes to this, that this is a sealing that takes place, that when it's applied to people, they're set apart because they are God's people. In this particular case, they're set apart for, for a special reason, and the reason is this, is so that the judgment does not fall upon them, that the wrath does not fall upon them when the day of judgment comes. If you're familiar with the book of Romans in chapter 4, if you don't know much about Romans, I would encourage you to know particular chapters in Romans, and one of them is chapter 4. In chapter 4 in Romans 4.11, uh, Paul talks about Abraham being sealed by circumcision. Sealed in the righteousness that comes by faith. That there's a, there's a, in the Old Testament, we understand this, that circumcision was a seal. It was God's seal. God's designated seal, Genesis chapter 17, that would be applied to those who were set apart as his people. As we study into the New Testament, we understand that circumcision is no longer a factor. That the sign and seal of the righteousness comes by faith is no longer circumcision. Now it is baptism. So you need to understand that there's a sealing process that takes place when we apply baptism to people. Now we understand this. That these seals are superficial in a physical sense. What I would say is this, is we don't, but you and I do not believe that every person that was ever circumcised in the Old Testament was a true believer. Neither do we believe that every person that's ever been baptized in the New Testament church is a believer either. So we need to understand something, that these seals, they're not superficial things that go on, the, that stay on the outside, but they are deep-hearted things that go down deep. Bad, circumcision never saved anyone. Baptism has never saved anyone either, nor will it ever save anyone. But when it is truly and legitimately applied to the person who has come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it seals them as being the possession of Jesus Christ himself. A precious possession that he loves. So are you sealed this morning? Are you set apart? No one here can read your heart. I can't. God can. You can. 
Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm not too sure. Well, you need, you need to make sure. If you need to reconsider things all over again, then do it. We all desperately need this sealing. We all desperately need this righteousness that comes by faith because no man, no woman, no child will be saved, ever has been saved, apart from the works of Jesus. But those who are his are truly sealed in it. It's not something we can lose. Very often, I really believe this, the church people, very often well-intentioned and well-meaning church people, believe almost as if we keep ourselves saved. In other words, maybe Jesus saved us by grace initially, but now what my job is, is to keep myself saved. How do I do that? I do that by doing the good works that Jesus called me to do. So Jesus saved me, but how do I say stay, say, stay saved? By following after Jesus' example, by doing the things that he does. I want to remind us this morning that if our salvation is dependent upon ourselves in any way, shape, or form, of, of moving all the way to its fulfillment and completion, that we will all utterly fail. No one will make it. It is all according to the power of God. And once he seals his promise, he will not fail in keeping it. Does that mean we can't stray pretty far sometimes? Yes. But you and I, if our faith truly is in Jesus, we can have the confidence that God is always going to bring us back. He will never let us go. Verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Now, how many people do you believe or estimate may have lived in the world through the history of the world at this time? Way, 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 way more than 144,000. There's one of the lessons we should get from this uh, that... Uh, that the number of people who are actually going to be saved in it is going to be just a very small percentage, 1% or maybe less of all the people that ever live. Well, Jesus does say some things. He says that the, the, the way is broad that most people take, and only a few go through the narrow gate, right? Maybe that's what's being depicted here. I don't really believe that. Because if you go on down here, in verse 9, it talks about this great multitude that was so large that nobody could ever count it. Now, let's just talk, uh, the 144,000 is by most what I call legitimate Bible commentators, they, rep they, they recognize it as just being a symbolic number, just symbolism. It's not to be taken literally. Because if you take it literally, then that's the conclusion you're going to come to. 
that of all the people that have ever lived or ever will live before the second coming of Christ and the wrath of God comes, there's only going to be 144,000 total. Now, you may not realize this, but that the, 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 the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that they're the 144,000. But see, that got a big problem now. problem is this, is there's way more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. I really believe this, that what we need to understand, 144,000 is a large number compared to, to one or two. But 144,000 is a very small number compared to billions because literally billions of people have lived in the world already. And then he gets into this listing here of the different tribes of Israel. Now, Normally, when you find these in Scripture, like in, in Genesis chapter 49, where, uh, where Jacob blesses his sons, those 12, the, the founders of the 12 tribes, that they're listed in the order of their birth. Not so here. Uh, there really doesn't seem to be much of a rhyme or reason the order of the different tribes that, the, that, that, that is entered into the text here. So I'm not even going to speculate on why, why possibly are they arranged the way they are because there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. Some interesting things. The, the, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned here at all. Another thing is this is Joseph is mentioned, when, and Joseph is not normally mentioned. Usually Joseph is represented as Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. Manasseh is mentioned here, and Joseph is mentioned here, but Manasseh is not mentioned either. So what are we going to do with all of this? Well, you may think I have all the answers to every question that you might have about Revelation, but I don't. The question we need to be answering ourselves is who are they representative of? Okay. Are they representative of descendants of Jacob? Believers among them. Well, you may not know that much Old Testament history, but we know a lot about three of the tribes of Israel beyond 722 B.C. These would be Levi, Benjamin, and Judah. The others... All of the other tribes of Israel are sometimes called the lost tribes of Israel. They were carried into bondage by the Assyrians when they destroyed their capital city and conquered their their land, and, and they sent them into the Assyrian exile. It's as if these people disappeared. 
There is no biblical account of any of the rest of them beyond that point in history or any other account for that matter. They were dispersed among the nations, those lost tribes of Israel. Now, could it be that what is going on here, you you and I may not even, there's a possibility that, that everyone in this room has a drop of blood from one of these tribes in a somewhere in our lineage. That's a possibility. But see, what I would say, and you, you'll find this, is, is the, the Reformed Bible commentators, almost to the man, will tell you that it's very likely that this 144,000 is just a description that is also applied In verse 9, where it's described as this great multitude that no one can count. Do we know definitively? No, we don't. This is one of those things I think we need to leave. There's a little bit of mystery of what's going on here. And I'm very comfortable leaving it there in mystery. And, And I'm encouraging you to maybe think about leaving it there too. Because if you get stuck in literalism, you're going to have to come to conclusions as to what this thing is teaching. In other words, you have to be consistent in your literalism. And if you're going to take literally the tribes of Israel here, you're going to have to take literally also that 144,000, etc., etc., etc. But we know this. We know that the book of Revelation is full of all kinds of signs and symbols. Sometimes we are told what those symbols and signs represent. Sometimes we just simply aren't. Well, there's some things we can say. We do, we know that, and we've used this. There's 24 elders, right? Twelve of those more than likely represent the 12 patriarchs. The other 12 represent the apostles. Could this be something that's going on here? It very definitely could be. Uh, Sometimes the the number 1,000 is considered to represent perfection. Uh, And I would say biblically, if we come to the conclusion that what is going on here is the setting apart of particular people of the heritage of the Israelites and making them and leaving them distinct from the Gentiles, it's anti-New Testament. So is it something you think you would find in the New Testament? I don't think so. As we read Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, What is the thrust of Paul's teaching there? He's writing a letter to to believers who were Gentiles. And he talks there about how they were far off, but now they're brought up close. And and he makes it very clear in that passage that what Jesus has done is this, is he's brought both bodies together, Jew and Gentile, together in the church universal. 
Is he going to do something different in Revelation? I don't think so. People very often today still are stuck on some things that it seems the New Testament has moved beyond. People continue to try to make a great distinction between Israel and the church. I would say to you this morning, that's not a distinction you and I need to be making. Because the New Testament doesn't make it. It paints exactly the opposite picture. That the church universal, the church triumphant. There there are going to be people of Jewish descent, of Israelite descent. But there are also going to be Gentiles. Verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can count from where? From every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and tongues. Where? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In other words, they are on that sea of glass between the elders and the throne of God, which means this, there is no one, there is nothing that stands between them and the Lord himself. They are there, in essence, at the foot of the throne of God. And we spoke last week of the fifth seal of the souls of the martyrs described as being under the altar. The same sort of thing. I mean, what we're seeing here, guys, is a picture of for the very first time in all of eternity, the church triumphant in its completeness and fullness before the throne of Christ and the Father. I mean, what are they saying? They're saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're worshiping both God the Father and the Son. And we know they're worshiping the Holy Spirit too, because even though he's not mentioned here. We know that he's there, those seven spirits before the throne of God. A great number will be saved. But we also know there's a great number who won't be saved. Just remember, this is an interlude. We are in the time of the sealing. Well, if we look ahead... We're told what the seal is. The seal is the name of a, 
of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. They were sealed in them, were sealed as his possession, possession of the Lord. What are they saying? Salvation to our God. Salvation to our God. In other words, they're ascribing the act of salvation as an act of God. That God has done everything necessary, salvifically. From the very beginning of time on through. To save all of those who are present there before them now. Some people have the idea that God had one plan of salvation in the Old Testament. And he's got a totally different new plan of salvation in the New Testament. There actually are some people who believe there have been seven different mechanisms by which God has saved people through the generations. goes by the name of dispensationalism. I was talking with someone the other day. And I would imagine this is true. I was talking to one of the other teaching elders that's, uh, that I know very well at Presbytery the other day. And we were talking about Revelation and, and all that. I said this to him and he was in full agreement. And that is, I really believe this, that most Christians, I think there would be very rare exceptions to that. Our understanding of the end times things at least has been tainted a little bit by the influence of dispensationalism on the church. In other words, every one of us in this room have believed particular aspects about the end times, about things to come. And I would say that in some cases, probably, they were not shaped very much by Scripture, but they, oh, they were shaped more by dispensational thought, which has been very, very prevalent in the 20th century, especially in Southern Baptist United States. If you ever use a Schofield Study Bible or have ever heard of it, that is dispensational. Dispensationalism is where we find things like a pre-trib rapture developed. And let me just say this again. I think I've said it already. I have looked and I have looked and I have looked and I've talked and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can find not one shred of evidence in Scripture for a pre-trib rapture, even though I would estimate there's a very large percentage of Christians, especially in the South today, who believe it is t- taught in scripture. You think about the Left Behind series. That's all based upon this idea of a pre-trib rapture. There are people that I know that believe it with heart and soul and mind and strength because their pastors taught it to them. And their pastor preaches from the Bible so he can't ever be wrong. There are people I can't even talk to about this particular thing because they are so convinced of the reality of it. 
What I would say to you is it's the doctrine of wishful thinking. And the whole idea is this. Is that there is a period of tribulation, a great tribulation that's coming before the second coming of Christ. Do you understand that? And that Christ will come mysteriously right before that. And he will take all believers out of the world. They'll go back to heaven with him. And when he comes back, his final time, they will come back with him. That requires that Jesus comes back two more times. You don't understand that. The scripture never talks about Jesus coming twice, ever. All of these end times passages in scripture, as far as I'm concerned, the best way to understand all of them, they have to do with the second coming and things leading up to it. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Olivet Discourse, you can totally disprove the idea of a preacher of rapture because it makes it very clear there, these are the words of Jesus, that there are believers in the world during the tribulation. You see, this is the idea that Jesus is going to take all of us out of here before things get really, really bad for those seven years of tribulation, and so we won't have to go through it. But let me tell you, Scripture, Jesus makes it very clear that there are the elect are still in the world during that tribulation. I would say to you that a lot of this is just nothing but wishful thinking. It would be kind of nice if we did have the promise of God in Scripture somewhere that before all the, all the havoc breaks loose really, really bad for this tribulation that comes before the second coming of Christ. It would be nice if we weren't here, right? But I'm telling you guys, it is not in Scripture. It just isn't. First Thessalonians chapter 4 is much better understood as applying to the second coming of Christ, not some secret coming of Jesus. It just doesn't even make any sense. So were you influenced by the Left Behind book series or maybe the movies? Did you, see the, did you watch those Left Behind movies? Let me just say this. I think this is, this is an example of how unbiblical teaching, and let me just say this, historically speaking, no one ever heard of a pre-trip rapture until just a little over 200 years ago. None of the church fathers believed it. None of them wrote about it. It just suddenly appeared because Dabney came up with the idea of all of this stuff. And let me tell you, it's grown in wave after wave after wave. It's had a huge influence upon the church, in the United States in particular, in more recent years. Something that really has no biblical basis at all. A particular minister I used to listen to very frequently. I really liked his preaching technique, his message was all, until one day I was listening to him, and he was dealing with a text that had something to do with time, and he bent and twisted that text to make it fit into his dispensational pattern, when there was no basis in that passage to do it. None at all. 
So why has it become such a popular belief? In other words, there are a lot of people who believe that you, to be orthodox, as far as end times go, you have to believe in this pre-trib rapture today. And if you're not, you don't really understand. It's what happens when people let other people do their talking and thinking rather than listening to what the Word of God has to say. Because as far as preacher rapture goes, the Bible is absolutely silent. Now there's a rapture coming. But when does it come? It comes when Jesus says it's going to come. Pre-trib rapture does not appear in the Olivet Discourse anywhere. Jesus does not mention it. You would think if Jesus was laying out all the things that are going to take place before he comes, that that certainly would be a key element, and he would make sure it was in there. But it's not there. He doesn't mention it at all. The passage in 1 Thessalonians that very often people want to use to support it, is much better understood as another depiction of the second coming of Christ, just like the Olivet Discourse is. Be careful, guys and gals, of what you read and what you study. Be a Berean. Weigh everything in the balance of Scripture. And if it holds, believe it. If it doesn't hold, deny it. We have this picture of the church triumphant in heaven, worshiping with the angels, worshiping with the elders, falling down on their faces before the throne, before the one who sits on the throne, before the Lamb who sits on the throne, for the Holy Spirit. And they worship him unfettered. Forever.